If you're joining us for the first time, we are um, a few weeks into a series that we've titled Choose Joy. And when we say that, we're not talking about kind of like a, a quick, flippant decision, but rather where we have to pursue a life that continues to make dozens hundreds or possibly even thousands of little decisions that that are ultimately going to sow the right seeds that will reap the right harvest of joy. And I think that deep down everybody wants joy. We're not we're not just talking happiness, we're talking like like a peace, a joy, a, a confidence, a calm in the storm and in spite of the circumstances. So we've looked at a few different topics that I'd encourage you to go back and take a look at, you can download the messages or listen to them online, everything is free. But today I want to take a look at something that I've just simply titled Speed Limit. Um, and we're going to look into this a bit more next year as well. It's probably going to be, I mean, not this term, but but this concept is going to be a theme uh, for us going forward next year because I believe it is such a significant challenge in the 21st century. Um, in fact, the the big question for us is, is whether or not we're actually living at a speed that allows us to, to create the space that we need to actually live well, to love deeply, to, to, to experience authentic joy. Are we living at the kind of speed that actually allows us to, to experience the fullness of life that God has called us to live. Um, I tend to think that most of us, myself included, that, that, that there's this constant pull, this constant tension towards living at a pace that actually, that, that, that actually removes the space that we need to actually nurture joy. So we have great intentions, but, but our lifestyles just actually don't allow us to live at a pace that allows us to slow down long enough to look at God looking at us with love. That's why it's hard for many of us to even come into a church service that's, that's actually designed to help us get focused. It's actually designed to help draw our attention kind of in the direction of God. Hopefully, hopefully that's what's happening. That is our goal. Because, because speed isn't just like an actual activity. It's a, it's a state of being where we live in a bit of a, bit of a hurry, a bit of a frenetic rush. I mean, I was even thinking this morning, I, I, was, I drove to church 6.30 this morning. There's like very few other cars on the road. I've got, a, I've got a taxi on the other side of the road over there at the traffic light, I'm at the traffic light, a taxi next to me. And both of them are like, like, like you can just see, like they're struggling to, to actually have to wait for that light to change. But it's not like we're in a traffic jam where, you know, you're trying your luck. Like, guys, you're going to get there. Like there's another traffic light 50 meters ahead, you know. But, but it's like, even when there's nothing ahead of us, we, like, like, we just can't sit still. We can't stand still for like 30 seconds. It's just so hard. John Mark Comer says that hurry and love are incompatible. Hurry and love are incompatible. All of my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I'm in a hurry. Late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day, I ooze anger, tension, and critical nagging. The antithesis of love. Think about this. The Bible describes the, the fruit, right? So this, is, this, this will be the overflowing of a life that is increasingly surrendered to God's Spirit in Galatians 5.22, it gives us examples like love and joy and peace 
and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Like these, these are not things that can actually be formed because we're being formed, right? We can fake it for a while. Like you can fake it in church. Your family knows the truth, right? We can fake it over here for a little bit, but the fruit that's being formed in us, none of those things can be formed in a hurry. None of those things can be formed in a rush. And that's why some of us actually get discouraged and disillusioned when what we believe doesn't seem to line up with how we behave. And the reason for that is because of the pace, I think. So much of the time, I think so much of it has to do with the pace at which we live. C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying, how you respond to an interruption reveals who you really are. So when it doesn't quite fit into your already jam-packed plan and schedule, who you are when you're interrupted reveals who you really are. That sucks, right? I know. Don't worry. We'll encourage you next week. Uh, No, no. Hopefully before you leave. I believe that we need speed limits. Because speed limits. We need speed limits. Thank you. Some of you are getting that. We need speed limits. Because speed does limit. Now, some speed is good. If your wife's about to give birth and you want to get to the hospital, you want to hurry. Okay? And there are many things where, where, where appropriate speed is required. But you cannot live at an unhealthy speed nonstop. If you don't break, you will break. We need speed limits because speed limits. Maya Friedman was a cardiologist and, and actually coined this phrase that maybe you've heard before. If you've been with us for a long time, I actually first started introducing this topic, believe it or not, probably about 10 years ago. I think I'm finally getting it. But he coined this phrase, hurry sickness. He was a cardiologist who uh, rose to fame for theorizing that people with a type A personality who are chronically angry and in a hurry most of the time are prone to heart attacks. He defined hurry sickness as follows. A continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. And deep breath, he said this in the 1950s. It is scary, the pace that... In fact, people have been ringing an alarm bell for decades. I think they would probably be rolling over in the grave if there was such a thing, if they could even even begin to imagine what has happened just in the last 10 years, not to mention the last 15 years. We live at a pace that can do violence to our souls. Just a couple of examples of how you may know that you have hurry sickness is when you're haunted by a fear that there are never enough hours to do what needs to be done. No matter what, no, no matter how much extra time you have, there's just, there's just never enough time to get everything that you think should get done, done. So we read faster, we talk faster. When listening, you nod faster in the hope that they're going to talk faster and wrap it up, right? You'd rather, this, this is me, which freaks me out a little bit, I would rather take a detour if I'm stuck in traffic, even though I know it might actually take me longer 
but at least I'm still moving than stay stuck in traffic. Do I have any friends out there? Like there's something wrong with this picture. Like Jason, you're going to burn more fuel. It's going to probably, it might even take you a little bit longer, but at least you feel like you're moving. There's something wrong with my state of being. You struggle to watch TV without also keeping yourself busy on another device. If you arrive, if you're driving and you get to traffic lights, you do a quick calculation looking at the year, make, and model of the car in the left lane versus the right lane, and you do a quick calculation to see who you think should be taking off first, right? <laughs> and when you get it wrong, you cheese off, right? Or, or when you go to the shops and you're trying to choose, you know, a till, again, you do a quick calculation, trolley, number of items, Versus the teller, and you, and then, and then you mark the person who is where you thought you would be, and you're watching, and you're watching, and you're watching. Do I have any friends? And if you win, you're like, if you don't, you like want to throw some middle fingers out there. Anyway, Jesus said in Matthew sixteen twenty six, "What do you benefit?" So let's even say you're successful at what you're trying to do. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And I would suggest that we're living in an increasingly soulless society. And it has to do with the state in which I believe we're living. Some of you would be familiar with the Bible and the New Testament. The first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, I mean, the first four all give an account of the life of Jesus, but the first three are, are, are very similar in the stories uh, that they recount. And one of them that's found in all three is something called the parable of the soils or the, the parable of, this, of the sowing into the soils. And, and I don't have time to, to read it, but you can find it in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, and Luke chapter 8. And basically, Jesus tells this story to explain the state of, of people's hearts, and this is 2,000 years ago, and he, and he goes through, you know, how some seed, so it's the same seed, it's the Word of God, the Bible tells us, the seed is thrown out, but some of it, you know, lands on a footpath, others land in shallow soil, but then the thorns grow up, and then other, other a third lot of seed also doesn't work up. There's only one type of soil that actually receives the seed and is allowed to actually, you know, receive, I guess, water and sustenance and allows it to actually take root, grow, and then it produces a, fruit, uh, um, a harvest 30, 60, 100 times. And, and I remember the one day reading, thinking, and, and I finally had this epiphany, that the only, like the key difference was that the fourth type of soil actually had space in it. Like that was the main thing. It just, it had space. It had the space to actually receive the seed. It had the space to allow the roots to actually, you know, to actually grow out versus, you know, landing on clay is too hard. I can't even get in there or it's not being strangled out by, by thorns and thistles and weeds. What the Bible says, you know, reflects the worries of this life. We need space. If you're not sure if this may uh, describe you, I want to take a look and it'll take us a few minutes, so, so bear with me, but I'd love for you to kind of take a, a bit of a, Keep a little bit of a mental score. There are 10 symptoms that Ruth Haley Barton mentions in her book. Well, she mentions eight or nine. John Marcoma, in his book, uh, adds a little bit to it. And I've added just a few more thoughts to this as well. But it's kind of 10 symptoms. Ruth Haley Barton in the book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. Excellent book. John Marcoma in his book, Ruthlessly Eliminating Hurry. Excellent book. Probably could change your life. We'll talk a lot more about this next year. So both of them talk about these 10 symptoms 
of hurry sickness. The first is irritability. So I want you to kind of just try and keep a little bit of a mental score for yourself, okay? So just mark, I mean, some of you are already thinking, yes. Okay, anyway. So irritability, you get mad, frustrated, or just annoyed way too easily. Little normal things irk you. People have to tiptoe around your ongoing low-grade negativity, if not anger. The, the key here is that to self-diagnose, don't look at how you treat your colleague or neighbor, but rather how you treat those closest to you, your spouse, your children, or perhaps a, a roommate. So if that's you, just in your mind. Okay, tick, one. Number two, hypersensitivity. You are regularly too easy to offend. All it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings, a grumpy email to set you off, or a little turn of events to throw you into an emotional funk and ruin your day. Minor things quickly escalate to major emotional events. Depending on your personality, this might show up as anger or nitpickiness or anxiety or depression or just tiredness. The ordinary challenges of life have a disproportionate effect on your emotional well-being and relational Grace, because relationships do take grace. You can't seem to roll with the punches. Don't worry, you have to put your hands up, right? Just, just, just keep a mental note and don't look at the person next to you and don't let them look at you, right? Lots of grace here. We're just, we're just trying to self-diagnose. We're not trying to shame, okay? Number three, restlessness. When you actually do try to slow down and rest, you can't relax. You've perhaps given the idea of a Sabbath a try and you hate it. You read scripture, but find it boring. You try and have quiet time with God, but can't focus your mind. You go to bed early, but toss and turn with anxiety. You watch TV, but simultaneously check your phone, fold laundry, and worry about tomorrow's demands. Have you, has anyone noticed that trying to watch a program or a movie and just focus on one thing at a time has become increasingly difficult? Your mind and body are hyped up. The idea of waiting for two minutes without some distraction, stimulation, or productivity actually leaves you feeling quite stressed out. Like if you're waiting at a traffic light and you don't check your phone, or you're waiting in a queue and you don't have something to read or something to make you feel like you're using the time in a worthwhile manner. Number four, workaholism or just nonstop activity. Like, like you want to be very careful that you don't define these things too narrowly. This isn't just in terms of your, your paid work. You don't know when to stop, or worse, you can't stop. Your drugs of choice are accomplishment and accumulation. These could show up as careerism or just as obsessive house cleaning and errand running. You fall prey to what some call sunset fatigue, where by day's end you have nothing left to give to your spouse children, or loved ones. They get the grumpy, abrupt, overtired you, and you know it's not pretty. Feeling better about yourselves? Number five. (laughs) Number five, emotional numbness. You don't have the capacity to feel and process your emotions or deal with someone else's emotions. You live in this kind of constant fog. Number six, out-of-order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity and calling. In fact, if someone were to stop and ask you, you wouldn't even have a clue who you are outside of what you do or what your calling is. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. Your life is reactive, not proactive. You're busier than ever before, yet still feel like you don't have time for what really matters to you. Months often go by, or even years, and you realize you still haven't gotten around to all the things you said were the most important. 
you may have hurry sickness. Number seven, lack of care for your body. You don't have time for the basics. Eight hours of sleep a night, daily exercise, healthy home-cooked food, minimal stimulants, margin. You gain weight, get sick multiple times a year, regularly wake up tired, don't sleep well, live off of caffeine, sugar, processed carbs, and alcohol. Number eight, escape. You guys are getting very serious and very, very, very quiet. Number eight, there is hope at the end, everybody. Just hang in there. We're just self-diagnosing first. Number eight, some, are you guys worried that you can, that, are you seven for seven so far, All right? Okay. Number eight, maybe there's hope. Escapist behaviors. When we're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for our souls, we each turn to our distraction of choice. And by the way, we all have a distraction of choice. Overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching series, sport or YouTube, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn. You find yourself stuck in the negative rut of socially acceptable addictions. Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. When you get over busy, the things that are truly life-giving for your soul are the first to go rather than the first go-to, such as a quiet time in the morning, scripture, prayer, Sabbath, worship on Sunday, a meal with friends, and so on. Because in an ironic catch-22, the things that actually refresh you take emotional and physical energy and self-discipline. When we get over busy, we get overtired. And when we get overtired, we don't have the energy or discipline to do what we need most for our souls. By the way, that's why I'm talking about this now, even though we're going to talk about it a lot more next year. But like, I want you to actually go into December, January, hopefully trying to make some adjustments. In some cases, where necessary, some radical adjustments. The cycle begins to feed off its own energy. So instead of life with God, we settle for life with the internet or a glass of cheap red wine. Not because time wasted online is the great Satan, but because we rarely get done binge watching anything or posting to social media or overeating and feel awake and alive from the soul outward, rested, refreshed, and ready for a new day. We delay the inevitable, an emotional crash. And as a consequence, we miss out on quality, life-giving connections with God and with those that actually He's placed around us. Number 10, we're at the end, everybody. You're going to be able to breathe again in a moment. Number 10, a tenth symptom of hurry sickness is isolation. You feel disconnected from God, from others, and from your own soul. On those rare times when you actually stop to pray, and by pray I don't mean ask God for stuff, I mean sit with God in the quiet. You're so stressed and distracted that your mind can't settle down long enough to enjoy the Father's company. Same with your friends. When you're with them, you're also with your phone or a million miles away in your mind running down the to-do list. And even when you're alone, you come face to face with the void that is your soul and immediately run back to the familiar groove of busyness and digital distraction. So, no hands, 
Don't shout at any numbers. Just in your own mind, just quickly. That's 10. We can keep it up for a few more seconds. Just, just in your own mind, are you like 7 out of 10? 8 out of 10? 10 out of 10? I mean, I, I, I do want to kind of lighten this up. And, and I promise you, there's no guilt, no shame. Like, like that's, that's, that's not the agenda. Like a, a, doc, a doctor doesn't, shouldn't feel guilty that he's trying to help you re- realize that there's something wrong with your chest. Like, don't, don't go do this right now. No, no, like you need to pay attention to it. So, so God's never trying to make you feel worse about yourself. God's trying to make us aware so that we can actually do what's going to help us be healthy. Uh, that we can be who he's called us to be. Psychologists tell us that anxiety is often our soul's way of telling us that something is deeply wrong and we need to fix it. Corrie Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And the reason for this is because busyness and sin, think about this, have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. Some of us give sin too much credit. And so we think, well, if we can just avoid this blatant, hectic stuff, we're okay. And I think the enemy laughs all the way to your grave. Because if he can just keep us busy, superficial, distracted, living with some false sense of a counterfeit life that overpromises and underdelivers, he's like, I've got you. Mary Oliver, a poet, wrote that attention is the beginning of devotion. That's why what I'm trying to get at is so important because, because we're living in an attention deficit economy where there is a constant competition. Some of the most Successful, in inverted commas, companies in the world absolutely have built their empires on getting our attention. Where, 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 where there is a constant competition for our attention. Jesus said that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. And so we, we automatically tend to think that treasure, in fact, John Mark Comer says it this way, that we usually interpret treasure to mean our two basic resources, which is time and money. But even more precious, and even more precious resource, is attention. Listen to this. Without it, our spiritual lives are stillborn in the womb. I've only ever made reference to that scripture in the, in, in the sense of time and money. And I'm being challenged to realize that more important actually than time and money is my attention. Because whatever I give my attention and my affection to is who I will become, and it's who or what I will worship. Ronald Rollheiser says that we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Okay, that statement meant more to me than it did to you. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Again, poet T.S. Lewis. In one, one line, one of his poems says, or he makes reference to how people are distracted from distraction by distraction. And John Marcoma unpacks that saying that it's meaning a world with just enough distraction to avoid the wound 
that could lead us to healing and life. Just enough distraction to avoid the wound. In other words, what, what is actually going on, what is actually painful, what is actually a gap, a void, a need in our lives, we, we're avoiding that, and at the same time, we're avoiding the journey, the path to healing and life. Could it be that an over-busy, digitally distracted life of speed is the greatest threat to spiritual life that we face in the modern world? Personally, my answer is a resounding yes. This is a challenge to me. I mean, I get it. I know that for many people, and, and I say this sincerely, respectfully, you would assume, well, you're a pastor, Don't you guys just chill most days and pray and maybe you play golf? You know, I don't know. Maybe some do. I don't. I think it would be embarrassing if I tried. Um, This is a challenge for me. It is hard for me not to work seven days a week. It's it's hard for me. There there is never not more to be done. This is a challenge. It is hard for me. I've been trying for the last two years, or year and a half, two years. I think I've gotten it right a couple of times to try and have a Sabbath, like, like an actual day a week that is that, that where, where we stop from all paid and unpaid work and actually, and actually we, we refresh, we replenish. It's hard. It's hard for me not to give in to my preferred distractions and escapes. I want to escape stuff. I want to escape you sometimes. I have, I have an incredibly deep burden. Like we don't want to just encourage you for a moment on a Sunday and then you just go back to normal life the rest of the week and you go back to default. Something has to shift, everybody. There's a lifestyle that has to shift. There is a, there is a formation that has to be different. I'm just, I'm just trying to whet your appetite. We're going to go into this a lot more next year. Yes, wetting. Thanks, Martine. She's forever corrupted this word in my mind. Because this, the solution is not more time. The solution is simplicity. Some of you have been around long enough to know that the solution to your debt is not necessarily more money. It's more margin. Similarly, similarly the solution to your time limits may not be more time. It may be more margin. It may be that we start saying no to things that are not life-giving, that are not healthy for us, that are not good for us. I mean, I read a quote. That, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know where these guys are based from, but I mean, there are reputable books where I trust the guys. And where they, I mean, the one, the one guy was saying that research shows that, that the average man, I assume this is in America, by the age of 21 has spent 10,000 hours playing video games. And those of you that know the law of, of becoming an expert, I think Malcolm Gladwell addressed it in the book Outliers. Like you, need 10, you just need to spend 10,000 hours on anything to become an expert, to, to become proficient at that thing. Many of us know that if we had more time, we would just fill it, maybe even with good things. Maybe you want to learn an, an instrument. Maybe, maybe you want to join CrossFit and get great abs. And then go traveling the world where you can show said abs. And, and maybe, you know, you're going to learn to become a chef. I don't know. But you'd land up becoming even more tired. 
Because we would just fill it up again. If we don't change something, nothing changes. The answer is not more. The answer is margin. In fact, that's, we, we're still kind of debating over the theme because I like the word margin, but some of the guys on our team that are in business saying margin will represent different things to different people. So maybe something like breathing room, which sounds very nice and spiritual. And, and the idea is that, is that if we don't have breathing room, if we don't, if we don't actually have just the space to actually take a breath, make no mistake, your relationships will suffer. Your health will suffer. Your relationship with God, don't deceive yourself. There's no way to experience true intimacy with God in a rush, in a hurry. We need breathing room. Your finances will be better if there's some breathing room, if there's margin. Your marriage will be better if there's a little bit more breathing room and margin. Your relationship with your kids, with your friends, it'll all be better. Hebrews 12 verse 1, I am kind of almost wrapping up, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Wait, Jason, didn't you say we must slow down? Well, yes, but we need to slow down at the right things. We, so, so we want to strip off the weight that is slowing us down from actually pursuing the life that God has created for us. We need to strip off the weight because, because as much as we are busy, in very many cases, we're, we're busy. It's like, again, it's like we're on a treadmill. So, so there's a lot of activity, but there's no, like there's, there's no progress. Lots of movement, no actual progress towards getting somewhere. So, so when the author of Hebrews is, is making the statement, it's stripping off some of that clatter, some of those distractions that, that's actually slowing us down from living the fullest life that I believe Jesus died to purchase for us. I don't have time to, to go into a lot of applications, which I really do like to do, but I want to give you some homework for those of you that are serious about this. Um, like we even considered maybe creating a website ourselves, but these guys have just done such a good job that I feel like we'd be reinventing the wheel substandard for no good reason. But practicingtheway.org is, is a great website that, I mean, you can just go on there and you'll find a whole bunch of stuff. You'll see that even some of the phrases on there are phrases that we've unapologetically stolen about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did because I think that sums up the Christian life. I think it sums up the great commandment that we have on the wall over there. So if you go to practicingtheway.org and then you scroll on down, you'll see a, a, a big page at the bottom that says unhurrying with a rule of life. Just click on there. There is so much good stuff on that, on that next page and there's one that actually talks about um, uh, something that they call, there's like a little black box that's a rule of life workbook sue and i are actually going away for a couple of days because it's our 20th anniversary everybody thank you susan and thank you jesus so we're going away for two nights i'm just telling you this is like i'm 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 busy doing some homework i'm i want to i want to I've, I've been making adjustments for a long time but it's a it's a long slow process so that's also why i want to encourage you don't start where you want to be, start where you are. Okay? So don't, so don't commit to some over-the-top stuff to become a monk tomorrow. That's not, that's not going to happen. That's a recipe for disaster. You will discourage yourself. You'll give up. So, so rather pursue progress more than perfect. 
and, and I can tell you that as, that as much as I haven't gotten everything right the way I want to yet, there, there has been significant progress. And you can ask Sue. My, honestly, probably for the first 20 years, sorry, the first, the first 18 years of our, of our life together, I don't think I've had anywhere near healthy rhythms. I think the last year and a half, it's starting to get a bit, a bit healthier, a bit better. So I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm one addict speaking to a group of addicts saying, I'm with you. Hi, my name is Jason. I'm a hurry addict. And, and I'm trying to find the rhythms, the rhythms of grace. The message version puts that particular passage of scripture. It talks about the easy yoke, the, the, the light burden, um, referring to a relationship with Jesus, how it's the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm trying to figure this out and I'm trying to drag you along on the journey. And if you really want to go full ball, then buy the book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a good book. It's a good book. It's a good book. Start where you are, not where you want to be. Another book that I just started reading yesterday, actually, but that's excellent already, is, is something called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Cal Newport, Digital Minimalism. It's scary, but we'll scare you more next year. Okay? So that's okay. We're going to encourage you as we're going into Christmas. But, but, I do, but I do want to suggest, and don't worry, I had these down before I started reading the book, um, and then I realized that this is where they got it from, the guys I got it from. He recommends that, that if at all possible, you do a 30-day detox, a 30-day digital detox. By the way, some of you might be scared at the, at the symptoms, at the withdrawal. Um, and, and the idea is to take every app off of your phone that won't get you fired. So I'm not saying shake a fist at your boss and say, hey, you can't contact me for, for, for a month. No, no. Because like, truth be told, that's probably not your biggest problem. Our biggest problem isn't what happens during working hours. For most of us, our biggest problem is what we give our disposable time to. Anyway, 30-day detox. Some recommend a digital Sabbath. So that's one day a week. And, and, and I've been trying that very recently. Just, or even, even just switching it off for like a couple of hours at a time that I can just do, do what also Cole Newport in his other book, Deep Work, calls Deep Work. Hence the term Deep Work for the book. Um, a digital Sabbath, one day a week. Some recommend that you parent your phone. Put your phone to bed before you <laughs> and let it get up after you. Some will even go as far as to recommend that you keep it more than arm's length away from you, that you don't sleep with it next to your bed, that you actually go and buy. Some of you won't know what this is, but, but, but we used to have things called an alarm clock. You know, it, it still wakes you up um, so, that your, so that your phone is not even in, in the room with you. Um, and just so you know, I've got your back. I checked it out. Take a lot. You can get an alarm clock for 179 rand. <laughs> just saying. If you're a parent, and, and, and by the way, I've, can I just tell you in advance, I've gotten, like, we, we fail at most of the stuff, just so you know. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being a Pharisee to anyone. I'm telling you that we get most of this wrong. They recommend that you are very cautious about like uh, trying to avoid all unnecessary phone usage in front of your kids. Kids should grow up not always seeing parents with a phone in their hands, otherwise it's teaching that digital addiction is normal. No phones at the dinner table. Time limits on screens. One screen at a time. I know, right? Like we used to do that. Like if you were watching TV, some of you don't even know what a TV is. TV is like that, it's like a big thing. That's in some people's, I know most of us just watch on the phones or the laptop, whatever. Anyway, one screen at a time. 
and avoid using screen time as a reward for kids. When we use it as a reward, this practice cultivates an unhealthy drive towards digital addiction. Stand with me. Don't go anywhere, those of you that are serving, but stand with me. I, I really want to get a heart across. And, and I haven't checked this with some of the psychologists in our church, so if I'm wrong, don't tell anybody. Okay? But, but what I have read from those that apparently have checked with psychologists is that the root cause behind our various addictions. And just so you know, I would imagine almost every one of us has some forms of addiction. Is the inability to face the pain of reality. So yes, yes, there is the neurobiological dimension. Yes, there's the physical dependency that we can create. But, 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 but apparently psychologists agree that going, am I right? Thank you. Okay, he's, he's nodding. All right. Or he's lying and he's just covering my back. Thank you, Bulgani. I appreciate it. And I saw Michelle somewhere. Is Michelle somewhere? Michelle, is this true? Okay, phew. Um, so yes, there is the neurobiological level, but, but going beneath that, there is a deep craving to escape pain, to, to, to escape something. Like, like we, want, we want the fantasy. We want the feeling. And so I want to encourage you that there is hope, but sometimes we have to do the work. Sometimes we have to be patient with the process. I was actually saying to the guys, the worship team and those that we were praying with earlier this morning that, that, I, think, that I, think, I think that it's great for us to have moments with God. And, and sometimes you'll have a life-changing moment in a service like this or, or somewhere else. But, but that's not often what will sustain the change. So it's good. Like it is good to have that. But, but God actually invites us into a relationship and He encourages us to persevere and I'm just telling you, depending on, on those of you that have maybe been in church for a long time, or maybe even grew up, maybe you had these mountaintop experiences and camp experiences and conference experiences, and, and they're great, but you know that it almost never, ever lasted. And so, I'm, and so I'm, I'm encouraging you to persevere. I'm saying there is going to be work involved. There is going to be some stripping off of things that are actually bogging us down, weighing us down, distracting us from the real issue, because the issue is seldom the issue. The issue is just a symptom, but there's a real issue. And God wants to meet with us. God wants us, I believe, to be able to slow down enough to actually look at God looking at us with love.